Let me dismiss our children for Children's Church at this time. Amen, and thank you for that gift choir. You couldn't do that. <laughs> Good morning, Highland. And believe me when I say it is a privilege for me to be here today. This is a holy place, and yours is a church and a community that I have admired from afar for your animated ministry in this city and beyond, for your bold witness and your imaginative leadership. I'm grateful to friends and peers, Carol, Emily, Renee, uh, grateful to Joe. It's been great to meet Nina and Kathy this morning as well. And I want to say a special thanks to Carol and Drew and James, my hosts this weekend, whose basement digs rival the square footage of my Manhattan apartment. <laughs> I do want to greet you on behalf of your friends at Metro Baptist in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood of Midtown Manhattan. My wife, Jenny, and I first came to Metro in May of 2009, and our son, Jack, was born about nine months later, back to that small apartment I told you about. <laughs> and we are, in fact, expecting a baby girl a month from yesterday, and so I have my phone on me today, and I assure you I will walk out of here if I need to <laughs> keep it right there. I want to say how grateful I am for the ways that God has knit us together, ways of which you may not even be aware, but part of my being here is in the hope that our friendship and our partnership, our relationship might grow and continue, that we might find ways to be encouraging to one another in the witness and the ministries that I think are so closely aligned. Your young adult group joined us two summers ago and also last summer with Emily and Carol brought youth last summer and Renee has been up before and of course the famous Anna Holiday, whose grandmother I must meet today by the way. <laughs> Anna Holiday was with us last year and did wonderful work as part of our clue camp under some challenging circumstances last year. When I think about Metro and attempt to describe it to others there are many stories that are just stacked on top of one another but one that rises to the top for me of late is a story that's told the testimony that's shared by our trustee chair, who is such a vital leader in our church. And about three years ago, was in a period of great despair and challenge in his own life. A gay man living with AIDS in New York City, he had experienced pain in many places, and one of those places had been the church. And he found himself in the midst of about a week and a half, a two-week stay in a mental health ward of a local hospital. It was a period that he now describes as a resurrection in his life, a coming back to life. And at the end of that stay, he had built a relationship with his young roommate throughout those weeks. And as they were parting ways, he said, you know, I, I'm anxious to forget this time. I don't think we need to exchange phone numbers or anything like that, but I want you to know that if you ever need me, that you can go to 40th Street and 9th Avenue, and there's a church there, and you can ring the bell, and somebody is always there, and they will know where to find me. And that is so much of what church has been. We are here because we have been found. Found by one another. Found by the elegant, compelling grace of Christ 
in our lives and in this place. And that is the church that you are. That is the story that you tell. And it is certainly who we are attempting to be at Metro Baptist Church. And it is from that place of being found that we hear again and gather around those words that Joe read for us from the gospel, that compelling call of Jesus, that sending out of the disciples, go from this place, go with the great mission manual and instructions that follow. And I invite you to hold those words in your heart and also to add to them that echo from the great call narrative in Isaiah when the voice of God says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And the prophet answers, Here I am, Lord. Send me. It all starts with one word. Our passage today from the Gospel of Matthew, this sending out of these disciples and all of the instruction that follows, is at first a singular charge. Go. Before the instructions to cure and to cleanse, to cast out, to call out, to preach and teach and reach out for the lost, the very first word is go. Your life, like my life, has probably had some going in it. There have been those moments when you set out, took a trip, took a chance, finally made plans to do what it is you had meant to do. Maybe you can still remember a last lingering parental hug outside your college dorm room on move-in day. Or maybe there was a moment when you decided you finally owed it to yourself to try the thing that you had been meaning to try. When I think of going, I remember an early morning in June, not so long ago, Jenny and I joined our lives together 10 years ago, this coming Friday. And that's also a clue to you that I'm older than you thought I was. <laughs> and after our honeymoon, we left our childhood home in Lakeland, Florida, and we set out for North Carolina, where I attended Wake Divinity School. We were bound for NC, and then who knows where, and we drove a 17-foot U-Haul thrifty mover that was filled up to the brim with our clothes, our furniture, the new mattress that we had bought dutifully with some wedding cash, and the box that my mom had packed full of my Christmas ornaments and some old T-ball jerseys. And it struck me as we went, as I drove that truck, everything that we own is packed behind me in 17 feet of U-Haul. And as if nature wanted to accentuate my sentimental mood, somewhere out past Interstate 4 in Florida, the sun began to rise that morning. Of course, much of our going occurs without those dramatic light cues. It's not so thick with romance and opportunity for bold decisions can leave us with unforgiving consequences and vulnerability can cause us to end up wounded by the road and journeys that start with confidence can end in dejection. And we have heard those travel stories enough. And that's why this charge from Jesus to go can clash with our better judgments, for we know too much, we have seen too much, and we know what this world can do to the wandering, to the wild-eyed, to people that fail to take the necessary precautions. It is a world that can be frightening and unforgiving, the kind of world, after all, that rolls stones in front of tombs, never to be moved, that all behind it might be encased there. 
It is a world, after all, where broken people stay broken, where dead people stay dead. And when we see enough of that story, we begin to internalize it. And we can start to live our life by its cues. So how tempting it is for us to spend our life in the safe and settled terrain. Forgoing challenges our better judgments. And we can find ourselves favoring the settled, stable, the altogether secure. And I have to think this has been the tendency of disciples and followers of Christ in any age. For imagine what must have been racing through their minds on that day in Capernaum. This account of Jesus and Matthew sending forth the disciples is one of the most jarring and demanding stories in all of the Gospels. Here's this curious, recently compelled group of followers that has witnessed all kinds of amazing things. Why, just yesterday, a demoniac freed from his demons, and before that, a man with leprosy made clean with a touch. But then Jesus comes around and starts the roll call, raises his hands, and he tells them to go. Understand, they've already left behind their homes, and now on top of that, he asks for their tunics, For their walking sticks, leave it behind, he says, and go. He tells them to go, but not only to go, to leave, and not only to leave, but to do, to do remarkable things. These very things that they had seen him do. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, he says. Work that is hard enough when you're fully outfitted, much less with no copper in your purse, with no sandals on your feet. But as Matthew tells it, that's how he sent them out. With very little marketable experience, with precious little targeted advice, without a protective embrace to send them on their way, almost like sending sheep out without a shepherd, out amidst the wolves. And this sending out can start to sound bizarre, can sound nonsensical to us really, But we might recall that this grand story that we tell, this story in which we find ourselves, that helps us make sense of our own lives, it has never been a safe story. Is he safe? Young Lucy asked Mr. and Mrs. Beaver somewhere in the middle of Narnia. Oh no, he's not safe. But he is good. And we disciples... We come to know this all too well when we follow in the way of Jesus. It's never been a story about settling down. It's a story about setting out, going ahead, moving forward. It's that story about how just when we're ready to enjoy the security and protection inside the fence line, the good shepherd turns to all of us, 99 gathered there. And he said, rest here, but there's this part of me that just can't join you Because I'm going out beyond to reach for the one and to bring him home, to bring her home again and again. It's that story of disciples approaching a tomb early one morning, carrying spices, understand, looking only for a body and nothing more, wanting to make sure that the tomb was sealed, the body contained, only to hear from the angels, he is not here, he is gone. He has gone out ahead of you. That's where you will find him. It's that story of incarnation that is itself a story about going. For maybe you've heard the word became flesh and it dwelt right in our midst. 
It's the story of Christ's willingness to leave that security, being in very nature God, to come dwell with us, to take on our burdens. It's always been that story of going. And it's always been that story of leaving, leaving settled, familiar terrain, leaving the trades that we've practiced, leaving the nets that we've thrown our whole lives leaving the stories that we have rehearsed and internalized of this world that can limit our imaginations, where our best hopes die and they stay dead, leaving that to go and become more than we knew we could be on our own. And so in Matthew's account, they are not simply asked to go, they are also asked to leave, to leave things behind Mark and Luke each make it a little easier on the disciples in their telling of this story. Mark lets them keep their shoes. And Luke says, shed your possessions, but only for the time being. But in Matthew, the charge is unabashedly, leave. Take no copper in your purse. Take no bag to carry all of your provisions with you. Take no staff to protect yourself on the road. There are no U-Hauls on this journey, Jesus seems to say. And just think of what a journey like that does to a person, leaving all behind to go out vulnerable and barefoot and wandering from town to town, depending on the kindness of others for a cup of water for a corner in which to sleep. When you travel like that, you never return the same. You can never return the same as when you left. After traveling like that, you never again volunteer at the local food pantry and hand the grocery bag across the table and assume that there's something heroic in that. After a trip like that, you don't return with a slideshow and talk about how the people you served had nothing before you arrived there. After you've depended on another's hospitality, Well, you can never again take your turn volunteering on the soup line and hold yourself apart from that person on the other side of the counter because when you look at her, when you look at him, you would see yourself. A few years ago, while serving as a youth minister at First Baptist Church of Lexington, North Carolina, I was attending worship at an African-American church, a church on the other side of town, and it was youth day, and the young choir stood before the congregation and they began to sing this song called, I Need You to Survive. Some of you may have heard it before. It's a song about community, a song that said, it is the will of God that every need be supplied and that we supply those needs for one another. And soon the congregation and the choir were singing back and forth to one another, I pray for you, you pray for me, I love you, I need you to survive. You are important to me. I need you to survive. I need you to survive. Your very survival depends on me and mine depends on you. And I was swept up in that moment and began to sing along until I realized this was not my song to sing. So independent, so individualistic. Such a self-made 23-year-old man. I had never known what that meant. We might say this morning, I had never learned what it meant to follow in this way of Jesus. To go 
in the way that Jesus calls. For as we go, we realize that our survival is wrapped up in one another, that we need one another, that we need to give to one another and receive from one another whatever it is we have to give and to receive. For when we've shed all that we've accumulated, the copper in our belts that lets us think that we are self-made, the sandals on our feet that insulate us from the road beneath us, the staffs in our hands that let us ward off and keep at a distance the unwanted, dangerous things. When it's all gone, we might find that all that's left are the things that we've been given. This elegant grace of Christ that redeems us. This love beyond measure that we experience in this place. This power of resurrection and coming back to life. And the really good news of the gospel this morning is this. That that's still enough. That that is enough to do the things that Christ is calling us to do in this world. To go and cure the sick. To work together to create a world where all people receive the care that they need. To go and raise up the dead. Finding those people who are asleep in their tombs, behind their stones, really, really dying. And telling them that we know of a story and a grace that can help them be alive again. To go and cleanse lepers, using our own bodies to touch those who have been cast out. Helping to restore them to community. To go and cast out demons. To refuse to accept the systems that dominate people in this world. And to proclaim the power of God that they be cast out. And soon it starts to look as though the kingdom of heaven itself is drawing near. Sometimes people ask me how I ended up at Metro. Where are you from? They ask. Or my favorite. So you're the pastor of this church. Well, why did you move here? Forgetting those two things might be related. And the easy answer from me is that it was an amazing and alluring opportunity to be a young pastor in a place of such imagination. But I love what I know of my predecessor at Metro, whose story is different. For David and his wife, Becky, moved to New York City to Metro Baptist Church, a church with some debt in those days, leveraging all that they could, with four children, ages 9 to 17. And he stayed there some 15 years. And when asked, David, why did you go? His answer, well, we did it for our kids. We did it for our kids. And I think that's right. I have a son, Jack, nearly two and a half, and I have a baby girl due just next month, and she is stretching and rolling and growing and responding to our voices, and one day, they will tell my story. One day, they will tell our stories. They will seek to make sense of our lives. They will seek to understand our faith And what in the world it meant to us. And let them say that we tried. 
that we gave, that we lived with some imagination, that we did what we could, that we were part of this work of Christ, this gospel work of the kingdom drawing near, that we set out and gave our lives to it. For ultimately, it's not a call to a destination, but to a way. It's not a call to a trip, but to a lifestyle. For our life has some going in it, yes, but our life also has some staying put. Our lives also have stability. Our lives are necessarily sedentary in many cases. We can't leave our jobs. We can't leave our homes. We can't leave our families. So instead of where we go, let us ask instead how we live, how we believe, how we move and act through this world. The late Donald Coggan, who was the former Archbishop of Canterbury, seemed to know this well. And on one particular occasion, the retired Dr. Coggan was traveling by train through the English countryside, and a young Anglican seminarian noticed him across the aisle on that train. And that might not seem like much to you and me, but to the seminarian, this was a celebrity. And so he worked up his courage, and he began to engage the archbishop in conversation. And they had this thrilling ride where they shared back and forth over the course of some hours. And when they finally came to their destination... The train reached the station. They prepared to part ways. They exchanged the usual pleasantries. Dr. Coggin, what a thrill this was for me, the seminarian said. Take care. And she walked away. And they began to walk down the platform there, and they came to that log jam at the luggage rack. You can understand the awkwardness for the seminarian now. Well, what should I do? We already said goodbye. I felt pretty good about my goodbye. I held it together pretty well. Do I just ignore? Do I re-engage? And the student elected to re-engage. So they spoke for a few more moments, and the luggage came. And again, the student said, Dr. Coggin, what a pleasure. Take good care. And then the student felt an arm grab her wrist. And the archbishop said, not take care. No, no. Take risk. And that's the gospel. The gospel as I understand it. And it starts with one word. And that's why the question that really interests God is the question we hear in that narrative of Isaiah's vision. It's not who will preach or who will teach or who will baptize. It's not who will cure, who will cleanse, who will spend. No. The important question is the question that we can sense in our souls even now. Who will go? Amen.